Father, we're thankful for just the privilege to get together this morning. Uh, we're just thankful that your mercies are new every morning and that we um, know you and get to walk with you because of your son, Jesus. Um, we're just thankful for your kindness to us in him and pray that as we discuss this morning who you are, um, how you work, Father, just because of who you are, um, that we would we would grow in our in our love for you um, and for others as you love us, and we would grow in in grace and mercy and patience um, as you have been gracious and merciful and patient with us. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so I'm going to start off with God's love. Now I want to I want to preface this with saying while Grudem attaches to one attribute, some some theologians have written entire um, systematic theologies around the concept of God, uh, God's love. In other words, they would say that some would argue that the most fundamental characteristic of who God is 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 love, and um, not not because it's the most repeated characteristic of God in Scripture, because it's not. Although it's said quite a bit. You will have something like um, holy, holy, holy that comes in triplicate, but but you don't have that with love, right? And so some would argue, well, holiness is the most fundamental, and people argue about which attribute is most fundamental to God. <clears throat> Can anybody tell me why why some would argue that love is most fundamental, other than the fact, not other than the fact that we have a deeply sentimental culture, which I'm not a big fan of sentimentality, so. Please misunderstand me. Why would a serious theologian, not someone who just loves to, oh, God is love, you know, not that kind of junk, but a serious theologian argue that, that that's most fundamental to what we see about him in Scripture? Because other attributes are extensions of love. Because in some way they would say that other attributes are, are you know, all in love. And, and the fact is all the attributes interact, right? So his justice is always, um, is ne- well, I should say his justice is never disconnected from love. Nor is his holiness, nor is, you know, right? But the same is true with the other direction. His love is never disconnected from holiness or justice either. So you have to, you know, okay. So some might argue that, but any, any other guesses as to what it might be? Surely without love you're but a clanging gong. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. That's true. Every, everything else is subservient to That's true. Yeah. But if he was loving without holiness, that would be a big mess as well, right? So, what... But if he was holy without love, right? Oh, he'd be frightening. Yeah. Yeah, he'd be frightening. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there'd be nothing but fear left in us at that point. uh, (laughs) Any other... Well, it seems like when he's asked what the greatest commandment is, it's about love. Okay. And he says that the whole law stems from that, basically. Right. The whole law stems from that, which comes out of who he is, right? In other words, what what guys say is, well, God didn't have to create. He didn't need anybody. Right? You guys follow me on that? He didn't have to create us. He didn't need any of us. He did, he, that, he, he had love existed in the Trinity before us, and he created out of love. And he didn't have to save or redeem anybody. It, it wasn't necessary that he save us or redeem us in that sense, you know, with, he would have been fine without us. <laughs> he could have theoretically sent us all to hell if he wanted to, or right? I mean, but but because of love, he was motivated to do that. And so they say in creation and redemption, the underlying theme is love, and therefore that really is the theme. Now, while I don't think love is necessarily the most fundamental attribute of God, I, I think that would be impossible to argue. I, I do think it's probably an overwhelming. The love of God is probably the overwhelming um, undertone that we see of Scripture, in Scripture, with regard to how He deals with us. You guys follow me on that? Motivator for what He does. Um, and and I, I need to be careful how I nuance that and say that, but the bottom line is, is it's out of His love that He creates us, it's out of His love that He redeems us, it's out of His love that He will eventually restore all things. Um, it's driven by that. Um, Grudem, Grudem gives the definition of love. God's love means, and I think this is a good definition, means that that God eternally gives of Himself to others. What what 
What are the basic parts of that definition? Can someone break down the basic parts of that definition? God's love means that he eternally gives himself to others, or gives of himself to others. Well, there's the eternal part. Okay, eternally. How can God's love be eternal? What, 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 is it, what are we getting at there? Trinity. Huh? The Trinity. The Trinity. So why is that? Uh, well, the Father is always begetting uh, the Son. He's always pouring out love to the Son through the Spirit. Uh, the Son is, through the Spirit, always giving love back to the Father. So there's eternal love pouring out. Between the Father and Son eternally. And they eternally decreed to, out of love, create, right? And redeem. You guys understand, if you go to a passage like Ephesians 1, it's an eternity past that God chooses to create and redeem, right? Um, it's like Ephesians 1, Paul pulls back the veil and says, let me tell you what God decided before eternity, before time began in eternity past. <coughs> he determined to... Um, save a group of people in his son, the beloved. You guys follow that? Okay. Um, he determined to do that. Uh, that was before he even created. Um, so if you go back, he's father's always loved the son, son's always loved the father. They both love one another through the bond of the spirit, which Augustine, uh, Augustine actually will, um, you guys know who St. Augustine is? Okay. Uh, fourth century to fifth century um, so, you know, 300s to 400s AD, he is a, um, he is a bishop, the Bishop of Hippo of North Africa. Um, he was a wild, sexually, you know, destructive almost young man whose mother prayed and prayed and prayed for him and used to pray with actually another guy named St. Ambrose of Milan. St. Ambrose was in Milan, at least, to pray together. She would come to him and tell him tell St. Ambrose that she's praying for her son because he was a big mess. Um, and eventually one day he was in a garden and he said he kept hearing this, tole lege, tole lege. You guys know what that means? Take up and read, take up and read. He kept hearing like this, these kids in the background playing, saying this, tole lege, tole lege, take up and read. So he picked up the Bible and read. He was reading in Romans 15 and became a Christian. And at that point, completely turned directions and became probably, arguably the smartest guy. Well, at least he's at least the smartest guy in Christian Christianity in the first thousand years of the church, potentially in the in the first two millennia. Um, not, you know, maybe accepting the you know accepting the Apostle Paul or somebody like that. But still, I mean, he probably was smarter than the Apostle Paul, although he didn't write scripture. Intellectually, he was a giant, right? It still is not just among us, but in secular circles as well as an intellectual giant. Um, but a Christian, he talks about the Holy Spirit as as sort of the bond of love between the Father and the Son. Not that he's not a person. He'll interchangeably use the Holy Spirit with grace. Um, he'll personify grace as the Holy Spirit and sees that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with his bond of love between them, which is through the Holy Spirit. He's, he's sort of playing that role. So... Um, so there's, the, there's this eternal love in the Trinity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that then is exercised out, so it's eternal, and then gives of himself to others. What, what, is, that, what is that talking about? Why, why use that definition for love? Love is not self-serving. <clears throat> it focuses others. And of all the things God could give, from, of himself, you know, God is eternal, he's omnipotent, he has everything at his disposal to give us. Mm -hmm. And he, he doesn't just give <clears throat> from himself, he, he gives of himself, right? So he, we actually get him. So that, what, what is, what is uh, you know, if you look at, for example, 1 John, look at 1 John chapter 1, um, when he starts talking about Jesus at the beginning of 1 John. Now, so you know, John is a letter written to the um, early church dealing with 
um, First Century Church dealing really with the problem of incipient Gnosticism. Does anybody know what incipient Gnosticism is? There's a big term that you don't hear used, thrown around a lot. A anybody know? Probably another word I could use is docetism is, is potentially the big problem, but sort of incipient Gnosticism, you know what I'm talking about? It's eyes above the physical world. Yeah. And now of Christ's physicality. Yeah. Basically, physicality is bad. The physical world is bad. The flesh is bad. And therefore, Jesus couldn't have had a human body. It couldn't have been real. Then his human body must have been um, just an illusion. It just appeared to be real. You guys, you guys understand that? Now, there's, there's an incipient Gnosticism. It, the reason it's called incipient Gnosticism is because it's docetism, which is this idea that Jesus was really a spirit and didn't really have a body. Because if he had a real body, then he would have been sinful. Because the flesh is inherently sinful. That's what they would argue. By the flesh, they don't just, we don't, they would say, it's not just the sin principle, it's in your soul, but it's actually the flesh and blood, the physicality of you that's evil. And that's what these guys would have argued, docetists. Um, so they would deny that Jesus had a physical human body. Does that make sense? The reason it's called incipient Gnosticism is because um, it's the beginnings of full-blown Gnosticism, which comes in the 2nd and 3rd, especially the 3rd century, um, which is this idea, comes in the 2nd and 3rd century, but this idea that not only is the physical body evil, but um, the Old Testament God is evil. He's a demiurge. Um, he entrapped us in physicality. That was his evil deed. And Jesus came to save us from physicality that the, that the evil demiurge of the Old Testament trapped us in. Does that make sense? Not, is it a good idea? But does it make sense? Okay. So Jesus came to trap us in that. I mean, to save us from that trap and show us that real life is lived outside of the body. And so, so they also, these guys all got this by secret knowledge. That's why it's called Gnosticism. That's this idea of secret knowledge. And, um, and they basically came after things. They, Gnostics had two tracks. So did Docetists. Since the body's naturally evil, two things happen. Either you, you go into asceticism, which is real holiness happens when you deny your physical flesh any pleasure. Right? That's what real holiness is. Deny yourself any physical pleasure. It's called asceticism. Um, Paul has to deal with that in the Colossians too. He actually <coughs> takes on the ascetics by name. Um, has to deal with them because they're saying, well, if you have any physical pleasure, then, then that's going to be sinful because you're in some way feeding this physical body. You guys follow me on that? Um, that ends up becoming quite popular in Roman Catholicism with the Desert Fathers in the 3rd and 4th century where they go out and live on top of poles and in caves and deny themselves food all the time and ne never have women um, and priests start denying themselves wives and because any kind of physical pleasure was seen as bad. You guys see how error begets more error, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Um, the, the, uh, so that was how it came into the church, but it also existed outside of the church um, largely and was, was declared heresy. Um, the other option is, since the physical body is bad, um, some groups said, might as well do what? It's already evil, so you might as well just go out and live it up. Enjoy all the pleasure you can, because you can't do anything about the fact that the flesh is evil. So those were sort of the two schools that came out of this. Paul has to rebuke asceticism, specifically denial of the body type of asceticism in Colossians 2 and 3. John deals with docetism, or that part of Gnosticism, which says that Jesus didn't have a physical body, right at the beginning of 1 John. He just comes out of the gate denying docetism. So if you look at what he says, that which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus, which we have heard, now notice all the physical descriptions he gives, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have, you know, seen with your eyes and looked upon, that's pretty redundant, isn't it, right? Looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, now, what, what's he saying about Jesus here? He's real. Yeah, he, we, could, we could hear him, see him, look at him, and we touched him. Right? He had a real body. Okay? Um, the life was made manifest. Concerning the word of life, speaking to you, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify 
to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Now I want you here. Here's the eternal life. Notice it's interesting. He objectifies Jesus and calls Jesus the eternal life, right? Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, you guys, you guys hear that so far? <clears throat> Jesus is the eternal life, right? Which the was with the Father and was what? Manifest to us. That which we have seen, again he comes back to that, and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with who? The Father. The Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, here's the big gift that God loved us enough to give us. He gives us fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the giving of himself. When you're invited into fellowship with the Father and with the Son, is there any better gift than that? You're invited into the fellowship of the Trinity. Do you guys understand what they're saying here? And, and so they're on mission. So they say, you know, if you've taken the perspectives class, you understand why the next phrase comes. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What's the point there? If they have fellowship already with the Father and the Son, wouldn't you think their joy would be complete right there? I have fellowship with the Trinity. But when is their joy made complete? When they share it with other people, to bring other people into fellowship with the Trinity. And why is it that they think their joy can't be complete until they share that fellowship that is with the Trinity? That's what the Trinity did with us. Because that's what the Trinity did with us. That's his mission. That's what he does. If you understand the love of God, the love of God is outgoing. Does that make sense? And so when you're invited into the love of God, then you share with him the love of taking that out. Does that make sense? The joy in being outgoing in that way. Not outgoing in the sense of being introverted or extrovert. You guys follow me? Outgoing in it. Love goes out. Okay. All right. So... Um, now, John comes back to this idea of love, so I want look at chapter 4 of 1 John. So we can look at this fundamentally, God is love. And look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And notice that he's grounding our love in God's love, right? And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, whoever loves, Right? Now, what, why would he say something like that? Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. God is the source of love. Yep. So one of the ways to know if you've been born of God or given new birth is what? By your love. By your love. You follow that? Because you're his children. You're his children, and if you're his children, then you're going to be like who? Like your, father. <clears throat> like your father, and your father what? Loves. Does that make sense? Okay, and he goes on to explain that. Anyone who does not love God, or does not love, sorry, anyone who does not love, does not know God. Because God is love. You understand the distinction, the statement he's making here? If you don't love others, then you don't know God. Because that's what God does. That's who he is. It's not just what he does. That's who he is. He is by nature one who loves. You guys follow that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and this is love. And this is the love of God. Or the love of God, sorry, was made manifest among us. So how do we see the love of God among us? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What, what does he mean by that? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's just highlighting the fact that God's love is outgoing. <clears throat> he created a way to appease his own wrath. Yeah, that's the ultimate expression of love, is to atone for sin. Yeah. He sent his son and gave while we were still his enemies. Yeah, while we're still his enemies. We're not loving him. In fact, at this point, right, we're not loving him, but he's loving us. 
He's loving his enemies. And he's doing what? Sending his son as a propitiation. That's a satisfaction for our sins. Um, a lot of times it's really easy for us, and I want to be clear about this, it's really easy for us to say, Jesus loves us. The Father, he's all pissed off up there in heaven, right? And Jesus loved us enough to come and save us. And to forget that not the Father, who's the one who sent the Son, and this is love, not that we love God, that's the speaking of the Father here, John differentiates to some degree, but that he loved us and sent his Son, right? So who's he speaking of when he says God there? Which person of the Godhead? Father. The Father. He loved us and sent his Son as a propitiation for our sins. So who was motivated to send Jesus to the cross? The Father. Right? Out of his love. You guys follow that? Okay? Um, that he's going to satisfy his, his, his own wrath against us. Okay? Uh, sent his only Son into the world. Okay, so you guys get that. Propitiation is satisfaction. So, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right? Okay. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, we ought to live the same way. Okay. So, um, Romans 5.8, what does it say? Come on, gentlemen. Romans 5.8. It's part of the Romans Road. You should know it. It's one of the ones you should know. What does it say? Without having to look it up. Um, <laughs> somebody. Good luck with that. <laughs> anybody in here know it without looking it up? But God <laughs> demonstrates his own love toward us. Yeah, his love toward us. Why? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Exactly. See, but God demonstrates his own love for us that in while in while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So what's so it's a, it's an interesting use of terms, by the way, okay? Because again, here he's coming back to the Father. God, God demonstrates right. He's coming back to the Father is in love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now it's an interesting phrase we don't stop to think about a lot. He's demonstrating something in the death of his Son. What's he demonstrating? That he loves us. His love for us. It's a demonstration of his love for us. God is showing off in a good way, the kind of way we hope we show off. Look look at how much I love you. Right? I love you and I want you to know I love you. You guys you guys see what's happening there? And he's and in that while we we're still sinners, in other words, if we're sinners, that what does that mean? We're his enemies. We're his enemies. What else? We don't love him. Right? We're in love with ourselves. What Sin at its root is basically what? Anybody? You know the root of sin? It's self-love. <clears throat> right? Self-love. We, you can call it selfishness if you want to, but it's ultimately really self-love, right? It's what Martin Luther, you know, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation said, it's when your heart is curvatus and say, it's curved in on itself. Right? That's the problem of man and sin, is our heart is curved in on itself. We think about self all the time. You guys know that's true, right? What do you generally reflect on? Yourself. You know, John and I were talking about this yesterday. Back, reflect on yourself in all kinds of ways. And Paul Tripp, Paul Tripp one, uh, one of the teachers at CCF, uh, Christian Catholic Education Foundation, makes the comment that uh, we, we become archaeologists, right? Where we, <laughs> Where we... Archaeologists of self, we dig up all our past events and we reflect on them because we're interpreters. He says, nobody ever acts according to the facts. Nobody ever acts according to the facts in life. You guys know that? You never actually act or react based on the facts of your life. You always act or react based on the, your interpretation of the facts of your life because we're constantly interpreting. And so there's always ways we interpret. Um, the world around us all the time. We're just constant interpreters. Um, and God has made us to be interpreters. But then he's given us a revelation to tell us how to properly interpret things. And so, but, but we're always wanting to interpret things about who? Ourselves, right? <coughs> Everything's in relation to me. Uh, Luther said that's our problem. Our hearts are curved in on ourselves. And, and that's not God's problem, right? His, his heart is outgoing. 
and it's turned out, and our hearts are to be turned out as well. So be a sinner is to have your heart turned in on yourself. Um, and and we, we see it ex- exercised in things like the way we love people. I love this person because they make me happy. Right? And as soon as they... Now, it's not wrong to love somebody that makes you happy. That's okay. But as soon as, as, soon as they stop making you happy, then what happens? The feelings go away. Yeah, my feelings go away, and now I'm not going to act in love toward them anymore. Right? Um, well, so then, if you do that, it's, I love my wife because she makes me happy, and she loves me. But that's not the only reason I love her. Right? And that's not all that it means to love her. That's part of it. Okay? I don't show up, you know, as John Piper says, at my wife's, do- at my wife's door with a bouquet of flowers, and when she opens the door, say, you know, happy anniversary, this is my duty. Okay? You know, <laughs> it's because I'm excited about her that I, I, I give her flowers, right? Because she'd be like, this your duty. So, I mean, but at the same time, it's true that I love my wife even if she doesn't fulfill what I want her to fulfill for me. If I don't, then the only person I really love is who? Me. I demonstrate I just love myself. Right? Okay. Um... But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, while we are doing nothing for him and everything against him, while we are completely focused on self, he gives a son as a or he gives a son for us, right? Jesus dies for our sins, right? Okay. Um, he's come to save us from that kingdom of self. John 3.16, somebody tell me what this one is. <laughs> you better know it. <laughs> somebody better know this one. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave who? Only the inside. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Okay? So he loves us, so he gave his son. Does that make sense? Clear enough? Alright. Galatians 2.20. Anybody know that one? It's the one where you feel like maybe Paul's confused. Right? What does it say? I am crucified with Christ. No, I'm crucified with Christ. Life. And yet I live. I was crucified, I but yet I live. live. But not I, but Christ who lives within me. <laughs> and the life I live, wait, wait, uh, you know, so you're just wondering if he understands sanctification. The life I live, <laughs> I live by faith in the Son of, Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, right? Okay. All right. Um, so he loved us. Okay, so why is Trinitarianism essential to understanding the love of God and the gospel? Now, you guys, what? Trinitarianism? How are you coming back to that? Because we're talking about the love of God, I've got to come back to Trinitarianism. So why is Trinitarianism essential to understanding the love of God and the gospel? The good news. Because uh, love is not something that was created when God created other personal beings. He had love within himself. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. Without a without a Trinity, or yeah, without a Trinity, God would not have known object for His love, and His love would have had to have been curved in on Himself if it existed at all. Um, so the Trinity is necessary for Him to to always have been loving for it to be one of His attributes. Okay. Love curved in on itself is not love. Exactly. Okay? So we see why the Trinity is necessary to understand the love of God, for love to exist and be outgoing, and he has to have objects for his love which exist within the Trinity. But what, what about the Gospel? Why is, why is it necessary to the Gospel? Why is Trinitarianism necessary to the Gospel? This connects to love as well, incidentally. That's why I'm asking the question. Well, the Gospels that are sin is atoned for through the death of the Son and the resurrection, defeat of death. And so that has to happen within the Trinity. That can't happen. You know, if God had a natural son, you know, like we do, then he, that wouldn't have been a good enough sacrifice. It has to be himself. It's fully himself. So it has to be Trinitarian. It has to be the God-man. It's atoned. Because of love that God even sent to Son in the first place. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He sends him in love. 
right? You understand that? He sends Jesus in love, in love for the Son, as well as the Son's bride. Okay, so John 17, 24, for example, Jesus makes his question, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Why does the Father even give the Son these people that are saved? Because he loves them. Because he loves the Son. Loves the Son. Why else would God choose to save the people who rebel against him constantly? Yeah. Ultimately because of the love of the Son, right? And then the Father also loves the people whom he's saving. And the fa- and the Son loves the Father, and therefore lives this way because of his love for the Father, right? And the Son loves the people the Father gave him. So if you go to, for example, Ephesians chapter 5, when he says, wives submit to your husbands, then he comes back and says, and husbands, love your wives. What? As Christ loves the church. As Christ loves the church, love the church, and gave himself up for her. Right? When you're dealing with the question of um, the extent of the atonement, uh, Paul makes a very direct statement as to the extent of the atonement. Christ loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. Right? Um, So there's this love that the Son has for his church. So you guys see how this is all driven out of the Trinity? Does that make sense? Okay. I can go on and on, but I'm not going to. What does it mean that God eternally gives himself to others? Oh, I already asked you guys that question. Let me move on. If we share this attribute with God, this attribute of love, how does it take shape? How does it take shape? What's the shape of this attribute that we share with God? Because we share the attribute of love, right? We're also capable of love. Mm-hmm. So, not how does it take shape, i.e., in self-love, because we're all turned in on ourselves, but how is it supposed to take shape, right? Okay? The way we love other people. Okay, the way you love other people. How else? Sacrificially. Sacrificially. Okay, and that's how it's going to look, is that you're going to sacrifice. You're going to love others at cost to yourself. Right? Not only when it's good for you, but when it costs you. That's, that, by the way, is where, where we're different from... That's why we can love our enemies. You know? You hear all these things. What good is it, brothers, if you, if you love those who love you? Don't the pagans do that? Everybody loves those who love them. Right? What sets Christians apart from non-Christians? Loving those that don't love you. Is that we love those who don't love us. Why? Why does that set us apart? Why does that make us different? Not, and I don't want to. I want to get beyond the little simple answer that because people, other because non-Christians only love the people who love them. Okay, we that's a given. That's true. We all know it. Okay, but why? Why does it make us like God to love those who don't love the, us? Because while we were yet sinners and enemies of God, God made a way for us to be reconciled. Yeah, God loved us. When it cost him everything, right? He, he got nothing out of it. He just got cost. You guys follow me on that? Okay, in that sense. And we're supposed to love others the same way. That's when he says the love of God being in you. It's really easy for you guys to say, well, I love people well. I know I'm born again because I love people well. All the people who <coughs> like me really well, I like them really well too. People who treat me well and love me well, I love them and treat them well too. You do that as an unbeliever. Right? When you're born again is when you love like God loved, who gave his son as propitiation for our sins. He gave his son for his enemies. He loves those who don't love him. That's, that's what the born again life looks like. Is you're able to love people who don't love you. You're becoming like your father. Right? So you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You love God. You love your neighbor as yourself. You love your neighbor. The third is not a third commandment that you love yourself. In spite of Christian 
counselors saying you love your neighbor as yourself, so that means you're supposed to, you're commanded to love yourself too. That is not what that means. What Jesus is saying is we all know you love yourself, right? That's already your problem, right? So love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. How much do you love yourself? Ultimately. Ultimately. <laughs> endlessly, right? <laughs> okay. He's making a statement about your condition. You don't need to be commanded to love yourself. We, we have nobody in the world who has the problem of a lack of self-love. Nobody. In fact, I would tell you that suicide, what about people who commit suicide? It's the ultimate act mm-hmm. of self-love. Because at the end of the day, the only person that matters in suicide is me. That's it. Right? You say, but you hate yourself. That's true. And you love yourself. And that's why you kill yourself. Because you're the only one that matters. You just stop thinking about everybody else except you. You guys follow me on that? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's, that's the, old, the whole world comes down to you. Okay? So it's both the ultimate act of self-hate and self-love at the same time. Which is a bizarre, confusing place to be that people end up for a variety of reasons I'm not going to get into today. But the point is, is that we all love ourselves. And so we're supposed to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. That's a lot. Right? <laughs> right? You guys follow me on that? To love God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor. Um, and you're supposed to love your enemies. Right? Love your enemies. And so that, so that God talks about this, let, let, let me look at, let's look at a few places. Look at um, Matthew. We're going to come back to 1 John. So if you, if you still have it, you can hold it. But look at uh, Matthew chapter 5. I already told you the great commandment, so I'm not going to go to Matthew 22 and deal with the great commandment again. Um, look at Matthew chapter 5. Hey, Chad, can I just make a statement about enemies real quick? Yes, sir. Yeah, I don't think that in, in our world today we really understand enemy as much as we should because we don't have people who are so in your face and actively seeking your harm, maybe even trying to kill you, that sort of thing. But when you start to think that you're supposed to love someone who might be trying to kill you, right? I mean, it, it just raises the bar for us culturally. It does. It does. And yeah, it, it depends on your profession and <coughs> Whatever how is. well you're known publicly. Point taken. Love actively tried to kill me. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, so, you know, yeah. when it says love your enemies, it just doesn't mean love those who don't really care for you. Has anybody had anybody to actively try to kill them yet? Other than me, you, your <laughs> just you and me, baby. <laughs> We're in the small company, right? So, um, all right. Um, okay, verse forty-three. And you're right. You're right, Jay. It's very difficult to love people who are actively trying to kill you. Right. Very difficult. That's what oh, Jesus yeah. did. Oh yeah. According, according to Jesus, anger is murder. So I've had. I think even my son tried to kill me. Well, hatred is murder. <laughs> hatred is murder. Anger, not necessarily. Yeah. Anger, you can in your anger not sin. Yeah. So if your but kid says I hate you, that means yeah, it's murder? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well then yeah, I've had that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the problem sometimes we deserve it. Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Verse forty three of Matthew five. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You notice that Jews love to, you know, twist the law from the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, you should hate your enemy. Okay? In that sense, the way they're quoting it here. Jesus is quoting what the rabbinical scholars have done with the Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay? Some of you may have been persecuted by people before. You're supposed to love them and pray for them. That's your reaction, right? Um, that that like your in-laws. Anybody ever been persecuted by the in-laws? Anybody? Right? Okay. Do you love them and pray for them in response? All right. Okay. Um, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Right? If you're if you're children of your Father in heaven, then you do what? You love enemies. Why? For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Now the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay. Now, if that text ought to send you to your knees and your face, recognizing your need for the grace of God in Jesus, because you cannot possibly do what He's commanding here, right? You guys not follow well. that, huh? Not well. Not in and of it, not in and of yourself, ain't, ain't gonna happen, right? So. But that's a high calling of love, right? That you love those who are cruel to you in return. That's what you get, get back from them. That's what Jesus came and died for us to deliver us from the kingdom of self. Self. Second Corinthians chapter five. Right? He came to deliver us from the kingdom of self. Now I don't I know a lot of times we don't think about that. He saved us from ourselves. That self love. Right? Okay. Um let me look at First John. Turn to First John because First John hammers the concept of love. Look First First John, um, chapter two. Do not love verse fifteen. Sorry, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, he just told us to love our enemies and says God loves the world. And John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, said, For God so loved the world, and now he's commanding us not to love the world. Um, what's the deal? What gives? He's not talking about people. He's talking about things. Yeah, he's talking about things. He's talking about this world system. Right? In one sense, he's talking about all the tribes, tongues, and peoples, right? The nations in John 3.16. Here he's talking about the world system and the world's things. You guys follow that? Ideologies. And the ideologies, etc. Okay. Do not love the world and things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You guys hear that? You love this world system and this world's way, which is... How is this world's system and this world's way ordered? It's ordered around the kingdom of self. Right? You love that, the love of the Father isn't in you. Because the Father doesn't ultimately love himself in the sense of he has a selfish love. It's always an outgoing. Does the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love them, love each other? Yes. So in that sense, God loves himself. But in the sense, it's always an outgoing love. Not a selfish love. You guys follow the difference there? Not okay. self-centered. Exactly. All right. Go on to 1 John 4 again. We, we hit this some already. But look at verse um, 19. We love because he first loved us. Right? If anyone says, I love God, verse 20... Anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, what's the determination? He's a liar. What's he a liar about? That he loves God. That he loves God. For he who does not love his brother, whom he can't who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's a pretty strong statement. Isn't it? Who is your brother in this passage? Pretty much everybody. I think it's other Christians. Uh, Yeah, I think largely he's talking about other Christians in this whole passage when he talks about brothers. But there's some there's some argument as to whether he's extending the term brother beyond that because sometimes Paul uses brother with regard to his kinsman according to the flesh. Sometimes he uses brother. Uh, Paul does, and so the question is: Is John using brother more flexibly, or is he just referring to Christians? And there's some debate about that. But at the very least, you know it's your brothers in Christ, um, and <clears> then you know you're already supposed to love your enemies. Right, so at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Um, you're supposed to love everybody. If you say, I love God, but I hate that person, right? you're a liar. 
That's a strong statement. And, and you're self-deceived. <laughs> okay. You guys understand how strong the statement is? Mm-hmm. Okay. John 13. How will people know that we are... How, how is it that people will know we are Jesus' disciples? Look at John chapter 13. John hits this. love for one another. Yeah. People will know that you're my disciples. John chapter 13 and verse 35. This is what he says. A new commandment, first I'll start in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. Now notice, how are you supposed to love one another? <laughs> In the same way that God loved us. Okay, yeah, exactly. All right, just as I love you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Why is it? What does it mean to be a disciple? What is a disciple? A student follower of Christ. A disciple is a follower of Christ, right? It's somebody who follows him. A disciple is somebody who follows, well, incidentally, a disciple is somebody who follows any teacher or rabbi in, in the New Testament time period. The disciples had, they, John had, the Baptist had disciples. Other rabbis had disciples. These are guys who follow them, learn from them, imitate their way of life, live like them, right? So if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to be someone who imitates me and follows me, how are people going to know that you're somebody who imitates me and follows me? Be like me. If you love one another, if you're like me, because that's what I do. I love other people, and so you know that's how they know if you're one of my followers. If you love other people, at cost yourself, like I do. Because follow me, John chapter fifteen. <clears throat> Look there to see the connection. And verse twelve. This is my commandment. By the way, he's already said, if you love me, you'll, you'll keep my commandments, right? Well, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, what does that mean? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his, for his friends. So who's Jesus lays down his life for his friends, right? And we're supposed to do the same. Now, that doesn't just mean your death on a cross, right? If you really love somebody, you'll die on a cross. Jesus died on a cross because he loved us, but it means that you'll absorb the hit for them, right? You'll pay the cost for them. You guys understand what he's saying there? If you really love somebody, that's what you do. You lay down your selfish pursuits for theirs. You lay down your selfish pursuits for their sake, for their good. You guys follow what it means to be a disciple here? You want to know if you're a disciple? Do you love him? And do you love his people? And do you love your enemies? Right? And that's why he can also say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Because to keep his commandments, what are the two, what are the, what's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God, our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What about the Ten Commandments? Yeah, those two, because the first four are all about loving God, and the next six are all about loving others, right? Do you guys follow me on that? Okay? Alright. Um, and, and incidentally, the love that you have for others is shaped by God's commands. There, there are ways that you love each other. God tells you. You don't just get to decide that. I think this is a loving way to act. Right? You actually are told in Scripture what love looks like in various ways. It's sacrificial, but we're, we're given more things. So what are some qualities of love and action toward others? So let's Let's see some of the qualities of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, you guys are familiar with this passage because it's read at every wedding, right, pretty much. Um, but here we get some qualities. Here's a church. What's the problem in the church of Corinth? Anybody in brief want to tell me the problem in the church of Corinth? <clears throat> false teachers. The super apostle. Okay, they have some false teaching. What? What? But what's the bigger problem? Each other. Huh? Each other. Yeah, they hate each other. They're massive divisions. In fact, he starts off in verse in chapter one, verse ten of First Corinthians saying, There are factions among you. And and what are they what are they arguing about? I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, 
I'm of Christ. In other words, there are some guys in there that had no creed but Christ even um, in Corinth, right? Because they're of Christ. Well, that's the party to be a part of. And Paul even rebukes that party. You notice that? Paul even rebukes the party that says, I'm of Christ. They're just trying to one-up everybody else. You're just another faction. I think a lot of people say they're biblicists. Right. Yeah. They're, they're basically saying that, that we're the real followers of Jesus. We really got it together, right? Um, Jesus is all we follow, not these other men, these other human teachers. We follow Jesus, right? We're the party of Christ. And Paul rebukes that as a divisive spirit. Um, that might shock you at some point. Go back and read that and reflect on it, right? Okay? Because you would think you'd say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Yeah, that's bad. Those are men. And then Paul says, some of you say, I'm of Christ. Why, why is that bad? Right? Um, anyway, I don't have time to get into it. But so you've got these people having factions. You've got people committing massive sexual immorality, right? A son is sleeping with his mother-in-law. The church is okay with it. You have people participating in other kinds of sexual immorality. In temple, probably temple prostitution. In other words, temple prostitutes in Corinth. The normal thing was when you did temple worship is you went to the temple and you slept with the prostitutes. Uh, that was a part of temple worship. So they were seemed to be sleeping with the temple prostitutes. They seemed to be eating the meals that was happening at the idolatrous feasts. They did, and they did that uncaring for their brothers who had a problem with it. You guys follow me on that? Um, so you had all of these different issues. You also had factions or divisions over the spiritual gifts. They were fighting over who has the best gifts, which gifts are the best gifts. And um, we have the real spiritual gifts because I can prophesy or, or I can speak in foreign languages, right? You guys follow me on that? So I have the real spiritual gifts. Um, and uh, Paul wants to deal with the heart of their problem in the way they see gifts because gifts are for the body, for the building up of one another. And in 1 Corinthians 13, he starts saying that you could have all these incredible things Listen to what you can have. If I speak in the tongues or the languages of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, it doesn't matter what comes out of my mouth, it's just a bunch of noise. Okay? If you speak with the theology of the magisterial reformers, but have not love, you're a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. You're just a bunch of noise coming out of your mouth. You follow me? Okay? He's just going after this. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see the problem here, okay? I can be the greatest social activist, the greatest theologian with the greatest insights, the most incredible preacher, but if I don't have love, none of it matters. Okay? And what is love? Now, I want you to hear how love is defined. Love is patient. Do you know what it means to be patient? It's long-suffering. That means it doesn't blow up on people. It waits. Love is patient. What happens about this? that guy, though, who just never seems to get it? You guys, you guys know that guy? You might be that guy. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. But, okay. <laughs> never seems to get it. You've got to do what? Be patient, because love is patient. Got to be kind. What does it mean to be kind? It's different than nice. We have a culture of niceness that drives me nuts. What does it mean to be kind? Sometimes kindness isn't very nice. What does it mean to be kind? Doing what's good for others. Yeah, it's it's graciousness. It's 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 you know um, it's it's that sort of yeah it's the sort of graciousness you show to others, right? God is patient and kind. So God's kindness, we all the time we, 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 we translate graciousness as kindness. Grace is kindness. It's doing something kind or gracious for people uh, who don't deserve it. All right? So love is patient and kind. All right? Um, uh, we, we can go on. Love does not envy who doesn't want what a neighbor has, right? It doesn't, and envy often happens in comparison. Sometimes you envy 
or boast, incidentally, right? Does not envy or boast, which is you're, you're comparing, you start comparing yourself to somebody, you see that they, they have something that you lack and you sort of envy it. And so then you'll oftentimes flip to boasting as a response. Well, I'm really good at this and they're a failure mm -hmm. at that. So you instantly look at what they fail at so you can compare yourself to them, right? He's a great guy, but he has this and this and this going on. It's a problem. And incidentally, all their failings are things you know you're strong in. You guys ever do that? Okay. Love doesn't do that, right? It is not arrogant or rude, right? Okay. It does not insist on its own way. That's a strong statement. I love my wife, but I often insist on my own way. So in that moment, am I loving my wife? Loving yourself. Loving myself. Uh, you want some definitions for how you love your wife as Christ loved the church? You don't always insist on your own way. Right? Um, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. In other words, you, you, you guys ever rejoiced at wrongdoing? You guys ever seen that happen? How about when your neighbor really blows it? Or that guy you just can't take really blows it and you sort of, I, I knew that was coming. You sort of rejoice in it? Ever, ever happened to you? Okay, yeah. Uh-huh. It's happened to me. I can tell you that right now. I struggle with it. Um, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Notice that. What does it bear? All things. So my mother-in-law is hard to bear. Right? All the things that are hard about her are part of all things, aren't they? That I'm supposed to bear. <laughs> okay? And that sucks to hear, but it's true. Bears all things. Believes all things. In other words, it's, 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 it's this idea of hopes all things. It's hoping for the best and believing for the best. It's, this, it's actually looking for what God is going to do, right? And it endures all things. How many things does love endure? All things. Is there a difference between bearing things and enduring things, or is that just redundancy for the sake of making point more strongly? Um, I, I think I, there's probably a difference in nuance, but probably not a huge difference in substance. Um, so, yeah, I think Josh is probably driving at a very strong point. Just like I think believes and hopes, there's a difference in nuance at what's getting at, but it's all driving at a very similar point. Love never, never, if you look at the next phrase, love never ends. It doesn't walk away. It doesn't give up. It's infinite. Yeah, in that sense. Well, yeah. God is love, right? Yeah. <laughs> As love doesn't end. So that's that. It doesn't doesn't say here though that love never disciplines because love does discipline, right? God loves us, so He disciplines us. Um, you guys follow me on that? So there there are ways. Sometimes discipline is the ultimate act of love for a parent because you're sitting there not wanting to do it, right? And you 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 yet yeah, you have to. Um, or even an employee, you're an employer and you got to fire somebody or reprimand somebody who's not doing what they're supposed to do, it's often unloving not to do it, right? You don't love them because you won't tell them the truth. Okay, so you guys understand how that goes because it, it rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. All right, how often do you meditate? Now, here's just sort of a couple of application questions. How often do you meditate on God's love being outgoing? In other words, God's love being giving. How often do you guys meditate on that? Before today? Yeah. Before today. <laughs> Not very. The self-giving nature of God's love. You guys meditate on that much? I, I encourage you to meditate on a lot. Meditate on a lot. You want to help meditate on it? Buy that book I recommended on the Trinity and read it. You guys know which book I'm talking about? I remember you talking about what it. What was it called again, John? Delighting in the Trinity. Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. He'll help you meditate on the outgoing nature of the love of God. Say, so, but it's a book on the Trinity. Uh-huh. It's really good. And it really focuses on 
God's love and its outgoing nature. Um, so that, listen, how often do you meditate on God's love being outgoing, giving, so that he desires for you to share in his love through fellowship with the Trinity? In other words, how many of you guys sit around and think about God's love is so outgoing that he invites me into, into fellowship with, with himself, with the Trinity? I get to fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We often think about the gospel as, I was saved, and the good news is that now I'm, now I'm forgiven for my sins and declared righteous, and, and maybe even I'm adopted as a son, and now I have a chance to live a holy life because the Spirit's in me. How many of us, though, think about what John 17 meditates on, or 1 John 1 meditates on, which is that we're in fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Is that not the highest privilege that adoption as a son means that you're adopted as a son, therefore you're in fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit. That's a huge privilege, isn't it? That's greater than justification. Did you guys hear that? That's a bigger privilege than being forgiven for your sins and declared righteous. Because forgiveness of your sins and the declaration of your righteousness is a means. Adoption is a means. To what end? That you would be in fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You guys follow me? That's the goal of all of that. Um, I don't think we think about that, but um, enough. J.I. Packer, when he talks about the New Testament, says very few of us think about the New Testament as really about the Father loving us enough to adopt us as his sons and, and bring us into relationship with himself, right? That's essentially what the New Testament is about. Um, in summary, okay. Um, that's what the Christian life is. Fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's a big deal. Think about Jesus eternally existing with the Father and the Holy Spirit and then grabbing himself a bride and yep. all of them existing together. Yep. And we are that bride. Yep. Now, are we mixed in with the nature of God? No. Okay, We're still separate. So I don't want to get into this idea that we're somehow... We're united to Christ really and mysteriously by the Holy Spirit or mystically by the Holy Spirit. But we're not like... We don't become a part of the Godhead. We're not the fourth member of the Trinity. You guys follow me on that? Okay? But we're in fellowship with them. All right? Um, how does God's self-giving love encourage us to love others? In the same way, it should it should be an inspiration for us to to mimic. Yeah, it gives us the strength to do it. Even when we can't do it, and we just can't. That's exactly right. So, by example, and um, as Jesus, uh, as with Jesus, because I don't need others if I have God. I don't need them if I have God, because God doesn't need us. Therefore, He's really free to love us, right? And because and mm. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have one another. They don't need us. Therefore, they're actually free to love us. And if I don't need others, because I have Him, I'm in fellowship with Him, I can really actually then love others because I'm free to give myself at cost to myself to others. That's marriage counseling 101. Right marriage counseling 101. If I need my spouse, I'm never free to love them, am I? Yeah. You guys follow that? Does that make sense? Because then I'm always demanding from my spouse rather than giving to my spouse. But if I have everything I need in God, then I can actually be free to love my spouse. You guys follow me on that? The same is true with any relationship, incidentally. Your other, other people in the church. How can you bear with others in the church in love? Because people in the church can be dirtbags. So how can you bear with them in love? Right? They can be. Just let's face it. We're all a bunch of sinners gathered together, okay? Um, and and how, how can we love one another well? well? If I don't need you to treat me a certain way and be a certain way towards me, and to, then I'm actually free to love you. Because I'm not sitting around demanding you do certain things or else I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. You guys follow me on that? All right. Incidentally, you make yourself easier to be loved, too. <laughs> yeah, you make it a lot easier to love you if you're not that needy. Exactly, that's true. Okay, 
Um, <laughs> a lot easier. Why, why does God's self-giving love, and I asked this earlier and I'm going to conclude with this. We'll get to mercy, grace, and patience next week. Why does God's self-giving love move us out on mission? Because God took the initiative. Okay. Anybody else? It's because of the verse that you read earlier. I forget which one it was. You know that uh, that God so loved us, He sent His Son, and then we're to love others with the same. Right? We're to take that mission out to others. We're to give that forward, and that fills us with joy. Same reason it did Him. To be shared. Yes, to be shared. You say something, Josh? That's what He loves to do, and so as we're loved by Him and changed by Him, then we love to do it. Too. I mean, oh. we don't naturally love to do it, but. As we are, as we are changed, we, we love to do it. We love to join him in his mission. If you guys want to think about it, God's love is a love on mission, isn't it? It's what it is. Throughout the scripture, you see God's love on mission, don't you? Ever since we came on the scene. Ever since we came on the scene. <laughs> he went on mission to pursue us, chase us down, save us. Um, that's why that's fundamental to what it means to be a Christian your people on mission um, to bring others into sharing fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Anybody want to pray for us? Send you packing. Do I give you guys enough to think about today? <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Jay. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are truly blown away by your love and by how it has impacted all that you've done with us and in all of creation. And Father, we are also impacted at, uh, at how high a calling it is for us to love as you have loved us. And uh, we ask for your help with that as we go forward this week. I pray that you would help us to think about your love um, and think about how you've given it to us and let us to, to meditate upon that. And Father, may you change us and enable us to love others uh, in the fashion that you have loved us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hi, gentlemen.